Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 102 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Joseph Michelli. Joseph is a speaker, organizational consultant, and author of several books, including his new one, The Airbnb Way, Five Leadership Lessons for Igniting Growth Through Loyalty, Community, and Belonging. And we have a great conversation about how Airbnb has been able to disrupt the hotel industry and become a wild success. And before we jump into that podcast episode, I want to encourage you. I want to invite you to the Find Your Courage Tour in Baltimore. If you hop over to my website, prcquin.com slash courage tour, you'll get some more details. Find Your Courage Tour December 9th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. And during that session, this leadership session, it's part leadership, part motivation, part strategy, giving you some tools, some practical advice that you can use to face your fears and to become a better leader in all areas of life going into 2020. So I want to invite you to join me for Find Your Courage, December 9th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Yeah, it's a Monday morning and I know people don't really have events on Monday mornings, but but talk to your boss, talk to your supervisor if you need some professional development time if you could sneak away it's a good time to spend two hours we're gonna have some great people in the room some great conversations and some advice to help you become a better leader also want to encourage you to check out my new book leading while scared how to find the courage to keep going now if you attend the find your courage tour you get a free copy of leading while scared and i know if you're across the country you can't make it to baltimore uh, we have other other dates and times for the courage tour i know January will be in Orlando, February will be in Atlanta, and then we have a couple of extra uh, tour dates going, going I think, until June. But if you can't make it, check out my, my book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going, and that's at prcquin.com slash scared. You, you, you'll want to check it out. You'll want to check it out. I share part of my journey as a leader sometimes when I was scared, some research that I've done conversations with other leaders about facing their fears and what courage looks like, helping you define what courage looks like for you. So you want to check that out. Okay. Had a great conversation with Joseph Michelli, Dr. Joseph Michelli. And, and we talk about his work with Starbucks. We talk about his interest in customer service. And we talk about some of the things that Airbnb has been able to do to become a resounding success in the hospitality business. This is a great conversation. It's about customer service. It's about leadership. It's about disruption. It's about finding your way. And it's about bringing your humanity to work. So here's my conversation with Dr. Joseph Michelli. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Grain podcast by Dr. J Joseph Michelli. He's an international sought after speaker an author, organizational consultant. His insights encourage leaders and frontline workers to grow and invest passionately in all areas of their lives. He's the author of numerous national bestsellers, including the Starbucks, Starbucks Experience, the New Gold Standard, and the New York Times number one bestseller, Prescription for Excellence. His new book is The Airbnb Way, Five Leadership Lessons for Igniting Growth Through Loyalty, Community, and Belonging. Dr. Michelli, thanks for joining me. Pierre, it's an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
So, so talk to me about, about the, the college version of you. And when, when you were in the in collegiate life, like what were you thinking at the time? What did you choose to study and what was life like for you? Well, when I was a kid, my mom said I had to be a lawyer. So I thought that's what I was going to do. And somewhere along the journey, I got more interested in psychology uh, than the law and uh, was deciding whether or not I was going to go get a PhD as a psychologist and a JD. Uh, but I decided I didn't want to go to school for the entirety of my life. So right. I stopped with a PhD. Okay. So, so why PhD work? Why, why graduate? Why doctoral work? Some people look at, you know, just the sound of a PhD uh, is overwhelming. What, what made you pursue that? Well, the irony is I don't put PhD on any of my book covers because people think it's going to be really boring to read, right? Um, you know, I think that for me, I, I wanted to continue to learn in a specialty area. For me, undergraduate was a great opportunity to learn a wide range of subjects, maybe learn how to learn, but I couldn't, I, I had no, no applicable skill upon completing college. So I had to keep going until I knew that I could create some value in the marketplace. It, as it relates to value in the marketplace, what really prompted you to really develop a niche in studying you know, customer service and how organizations and brands interact with the people that they're supposed to serve? Well, I'm so blessed. I was in graduate school. And I got an opportunity to meet with uh, the leaders at Pipe Place Fish Market, uh, Johnny Yokoyama, who owned this tiny little fish market in Seattle. Uh, he was struggling a bit to get his business right. And I was able to get up there and, and work with him. And uh, I kind of think we bumbled together into a very differentiated experience. If you ever go to the Pipe Place Market in Seattle, they throw fish and people are extremely excited and engaged in the interaction. And so from that fluky sort of experience, Howard Schultz that was just down the street, literally a block away for the original Starbucks store, uh, enabled me to kind of come and work with him. And then we started to write books about uh, Starbucks. I did a couple of those. And uh, yeah, it's, it was one of those things where, you know, in graduate school, I was just trying to figure out how to make a difference and somebody had a big need and they didn't have much money. So a graduate student was the perfect person to come and help them. And uh, from there, great other opportunities opened up. Well, well, share with us for a few moments about the necessity of being open to opportunities like that. Because a lot of times when we go through school and sort of the regimen of school, and sometimes we have this boxed-in paradigm of what our learning and what our experiences should look like. And you mentioned kind of stumbling through and then being positioned at the right place. How much did it, just being open to those opportunities play a part in your success in those areas? Yeah, the late Earl Nightingale once said that success is the joinder of readiness and opportunity. You know, I think sometimes readiness is skill-based and you have the skills and the opportunity comes up and you just jump in. Sometimes readiness is just a mindset that says, you know, I am willing to do, learn, be adaptive, be hungry, be changeable. Um, and an opportunity pops up and you're not fully competent, but your, your spirit is so amazingly competent. Um, and you put in the effort to make sure that you're not an imposter. So, um, yeah, lots of people, I think there are opportunities that knock on their door and they don't answer, um, because they're afraid of not being ready. I think sometimes when those opportunities come knocking, you have to do a pretty good assessment of saying, do I have the right stuff, if you will? to seize this opportunity in a way that's going to be beneficial to me and to the organization that comes knocking. 
I think Richard Branson has a quote, something to the effect of if someone offers you an incredible opportunity, uh, say yes, and then figure out how to do it later. Is that something that you found yourself doing early in your career? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a point where it's so over your head or over your skis that you probably should pass on it. I mean, there are there's a kind of a bandwidth there. I think most people are, Branson's comments, I think, are really powerful because most people don't have the courage, the mm-hmm. boldness, the audacity to step up. And so I think it's a really good encourager. There are times in my career where I've absolutely had to say, sorry, that's not my expertise. This is someone else's place to come in. Here's what I can do for you. And I think that's the important part of the equation is never selling yourself short. You can always add value to any interaction. Sometimes what people ask for is beyond what you can add value to. And for credibility's sake, it's not just a stretch. It's, it's just way out of your lane. So, yeah, but I, I, you know, I think for me, a life has always been about saying yes and here's what I can do. Well, speaking of adding value to interaction, we're recording this podcast episode around the holiday season. This is, this is Christmas shopping time for people who are into that. And we find a lot of companies just missing out on on adding value to their to the holiday shoppers simply in the area of how their employees interact. I mean, it's busy. We're fighting over parking spaces. You know, we're trying to use coupons and get deals and everybody's shopping and frantic. What are some of the things that you that a person can do if they're working in a customer service environment, say they're at a mall or a kiosk or a department store, what's something that they can do to add value during, especially during this hustle and bustle? Yeah, I think that the first and foremost thing is to realize we are in the people business. Uh, Even if we're doing it online, we're still in a people business. And I think a lot of people get lost in the technology or they get lost in their product and they forget about the fact that it's all about the perception of the consumer that ultimately determines the success of a brand. You know, brands are little more than what people say about us when we're not around. And most of the time we want them to say that we cared about them as humans So I think at the very beginning of this is to kind of huddle your teams together every morning if you're in retail and say, okay, we're treating people today. And today is going to be about acknowledging and making sure that everybody feels like they belong here and to the degree possible, a gratitude for them having spent time here. And if we could just do those two things, we can create something different than what you can do on online shopping, for example. I mean, I've yet to have any website really truly make me feel welcome. Right. And I've never had a website that said, thank you for your order. And I really felt it like they really meant it, you know. And so if humans could do that, if we could celebrate your arrival in our store for just a moment. And if I've got someone else, at least acknowledge you with my eyes or a hand gesture or something. That's a step in the right direction of humanity. And I think with all of the impersonal shopping that we do, and it's all great and fine and wonderful. And I do it, too. And I love the ease and convenience. If I'm going to opt into an interaction with a human, then bring your humanity to the game and let's inspire people to deliver that. You know, if I'm a clerk and I'm serving my 5,000th customer on this holiday season, it's pretty hard for me to remember that this is a person and that my business, what, what I, my value is not just helping them find the widget. My value is being a person to them as they're desperately trying to find that one last minute thing that they need for a family member. So, yeah, I think it's all about inspiring them to realize this is a noble opportunity to be of service. So so are you suggesting that that organizations do like the juggernaut of 
Walmart where they I've been in there early in the morning where they have their rah-rah meetings and everybody's in a circle and chanting. Are, are you suggesting that we have to go to that level to be ready to service our customers? I think we just have to remind people. Sometimes the rah-rah helps, you know, uh, particularly in times of great crisis. But I think the main thing is just to look at people in the eye and say, you know what? You are here and you have this great opportunity from this little place in the world to be of service to people. How many people's lives will you touch today and how significant will you be in their lives? It's your opportunity. And, you know, whether it's rah-rah or it's from the heart, I really love that I get to serve people. I love that you're willing to take time with me today and that I might have an impact on somebody in your audience. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not grandiose enough to think that I will, but I, I, I want to try hard for somebody out there to say, oh, yeah, that, that caused me to be different today than I might have been without his, his voice in my ear. So yeah, that's, that's what I would want every employee on my team. We have those regular conversations about who are we going to serve today? Who are we willing to not delight, right? Who, and who amongst us that we're going to get to, is it, is it going to be Pierre today? Are we going to just not delight him, but we'll take, you know, the next person we serve that they'll be okay. Um, No, I mean, really we should be committed to giving our all for you today. Um, So there it is. I mean, I think that's the message that we should be giving people uh, that we are humans who can connect with humans in ways that technology can't. I want to to jump into your your new book, but before you, before I do, I j- I just have to ask you some Starbucks questions. Oh please! And and here's here's like confession. All right, just don't tell anybody. I I can't stand coffee, but I love Starbucks. Well, I like that about you already. That's great. That's a confession worthy of sharing. And I'm trying to figure out, can you unpack a little bit uh, why, why there, cause there's a lot of people like me who they're not, they don't have an affinity for co- coffee, but they love Starbucks. Like Starbucks. Well, yeah. I mean, Starbucks is largely espresso based drinks. When Starbucks came up, more people owned private jets than they owned espresso machines. So not many Americans were into espresso, right? Um, but largely it's milk. I mean, let's get honest about the bulk of what you're drinking is milk, 18 ounces of milk and two ounces of espresso, probably in a larger drink. But, but that notwithstanding, I think the whole brand is predicated on, you know, this concept. It doesn't happen much. Most people rush in and grab their drink and rush out. But the concept is welcome to the living room of the community. Come on in, sit in some affordable luxury. I don't care how cramped you are in your your tenement or whatever you might be experiencing. Just come in for a second. This is the community's living room. Sit down, enjoy the Wi-Fi, have a meeting here. Uh, you know, bring your family in. Let's all meet here and gather up before we go do something else. And so I think that's that it's that creating a community space that has been very, very good for them. Uh, they charge a, you know, a, a kind of affordable luxury pricing on their products. So it's, it's a treat for myself to do something nice. And, um, you know, some people do something nice for themselves 28 times a month. The high hardcore users are there almost every day. Um, so clearly it's become a part of a ritual of their day. That's part of how they, they orient themselves and have some structure. Yeah. Listen, I'll pull up for a a vanilla chai any day. And see, there you go. You, you don't even have to drink anything that has espresso in it. You could drink the chai, but yeah, that's a flavorful, I think, treat. So, so why do you feel like just in terms of the brand, it's been 
so pervasive because and I remember reading this whole concept of creating this third space between work and home where people can gather for community. But it it seems to be just racing past all lines, like socioeconomic lines, like like ethnic lines. It's just so pervasive that everybody wants a little piece piece of Starbucks. How, how have they been able to, to create that? Well, early on when I was working with Howard, he would, uh, Howard Schultz would say that, you know, my goal was to get to Portland from Seattle, like from a re I wanted to be a regional brand, not a global brand, just a regional brand. And they made it to, to Portland in case anybody's concerned. Um, and then a little bit farther. I think what the resonance of this brand is that in many ways, you know, the coffee shops of the era before that were really terrible product and they're kind of like trucker dive zones. Uh, this was supposed to be a very welcoming place for all. Um, you know, everyone was welcome at the table of Starbucks. And I think it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just for, you know, a redneck community of people who wanted to drink rock gut coffee. It was really trying to be a softer, gentler, welcoming, accepting place. And um, it's, it's really caught on. I think it's beyond what anything anybody could have imagined in terms of that. But, but they hit a, a chord and nobody was doing it the way Starbucks has done it. And they've opened up a whole marketplace for mom and pop coffee shops, uh, very much like Starbucks in, in every community. What's one of the things that an emerging leader can can take away from really the journey of Starbucks? Because it, it hasn't always been sunshine and roses. It's been some trial and error, some restructuring and rethinking of how to do the business. What as a younger leader, a younger entrepreneur, some lessons that we can learn from that experience? Yeah, I think try things, uh, but don't don't get too wedded on anything, right? Let the market tell you whether or not it's viable or not. Starbucks has had some disasters. They had a fizzy coffee that made people sick, right? Like they had they tried sipping coffee called Chantico, and nobody drank it. Um, you know, there's been so many blunders. They got into retail and they were selling, you know, coffee colored couches at one point. And, and they sold hear music bars where you could come in and download songs and just listen all day and sip coffee. And they were in the movie business for a while. And all these things are exploring adjacencies, which is what good leaders do. They look for how far can I stretch when I'm, I got success here. Can I stretch it out to here? How far about here? You know, just farther and farther until you know, at some point things don't, consumers don't buy them. They don't want them. And rather than going all in, Starbucks was very good about, uh, I, would, I would say, listen, test, you know, listen, ideate, think about things that could solve it, test some things, and then deploy the things that work and keep listening during the entire loop. So that's what I think they did really well, um, was constantly push the envelope, but always pay attention to whether or not it was resonant with the consumer or not. I know this ties a little bit into what you talk about in your new book. What's the danger? And we're seeing a lot of longtime traditional businesses close because they haven't kept that feedback loop open and because they weren't able to make that that pivot. What can we learn from these big box retailers and longstanding businesses that are closing because they're not listening and not able to make that pivot? Yeah, I think the bigger you get, the harder it is to pivot, right? I mean, it's uh, it's the cruise ship pivot versus kind of a dinghy 
you know, uh, trying to pivot it. But but the reality is a lot of this is, you know, the, the incremental journey of business improvement. So if, if you think about the way most companies work, and this is a business law called Martech's law, but Martech's law says most companies get better incrementally, a little bit more, you know, I'm a little better today than I was yesterday. But consumer behavior isn't always incremental. It isn't just slightly one, you know, a little bit different than yesterday. I mean, if you look at the mobile phone, it has been it has been exponentially different the way we live our lives. You know, people can't go to sleep without having their phone next to them. And if they wake up, there's a fear of missing out. And they, they actually check their phones in the middle of the night. I mean, these behaviors mean that if you're not playing in a digital world, if you're not matching the exponential change in behavior from consumers, then you're going to have this big gap between the slight improvements you made day over day and this wild roller coaster that the customer is on. And that gap is what MarTech's law calls the disruption gap. And it is those brands who shoot the gap, who say, I'm not going to continue to do what those legacy brands are doing incrementally. I'm going to meet the consumer where the consumer is, and I'm going to deliver against their expectations. And that's why brands like Airbnb, which is the latest book, have disrupted the hotel industry, or it's why Netflix disrupted Blockbuster, or any number of other you know disruptions that have happened because these other brands were paying attention to you know online streaming as opposed to having to wait in line to pay a late fee. Let's talk about the Airbnb way first. Um, explain to those, and I, there might not be that many people out there, but if they've never had an Airbnb experience. Uh, ex- explain to them what what is Airbnb, what what is the company, what does it do? So in 2008, I was writing about the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company and working with leaders there, and we were debating issues. So Ritz-Carlton's the, the high luxury end of hoteling, right? And so we were dealing with issues like, could we possibly serve a beer in a bottle to a Ritz-Carlton guest? Meaning that affluent travelers were changing. And in the old days, you could only serve it to them, poured into a glass, and hand it to them with the utmost of love and respect. But in the modern age, people are like, just serve me the beer in the glass, you know, in the bottle. I don't need a glass. Um, And so this was the debate in 2008. So while I'm debating this with leaders at Ritz-Carlton, there are two guys in San Francisco who couldn't make rent on their apartment. And so they were trying to find a way to just get to the end of the month. And they knew a design conference was coming into San Francisco and they were design students. So they they targeted other design students through a rudimentary website and said, hey, why don't you come and stay in our spare room, $80 a night, stay on an air mattress and we'll give you breakfast, which was uncooked Pop-Tarts. Okay, that was the reality. They filled the place with air mattresses and $80 per night guests and lo and behold, they made rent. Well, that air mattress, Airbnb and the breakfast, the Pop Tarts, was their offering. And that's what they called themselves first air, bed, and breakfast. Well, after a while, they got another guy in who created a better website, created a better marketplace online. They expanded their offerings. And 11 years later, Airbnb is valued at $38 billion, which is right at about what Marriott is valued at. Maybe Marriott's probably got about $10 billion more on them, but all in all, and Marriott owns the Ritz-Carlton, by the way. So here we have this company that has all these assets, Marriott, and this company that only has a website that interconnects hosts and guests, and they're on par. I mean, how can this be? So that's the world we live in 11 years later. I think that if you haven't been on Airbnb, it's just it's just trying to find space 
it used to be called vacation rental by owner, for example, if you wanted to go and stay in somebody's vacation house and you'd go online, had a terrible website, uh, terrible policies, but you could still do it. And, and there was crowdsurfing.com that came before. So if you wanted to stay on somebody's couch, or sorry, couchsurfing.com, you could stay on somebody's couch uh, for very little money. And uh, their website wasn't all that great either. But Airbnb created a great website, a big marketplace, list your property, stay in a yurt, stay in a castle, whatever your preference is. Um, and that's pretty much what the, what the value proposition is. How has Airbnb been able to get around the, you know, sort of like stranger danger sort of feel? Because when you go to a hotel, you know, it's the, the security and there's a standard and there's a regimen. But Airbnb, and I've stayed several times, you, you know, you're going into somebody else's house and somebody else's space. And, you know, who knows if they will come in, you know, want to come home or something. How have they been able to get past uh, those feelings of, of traditional lodging versus, you know, staying in someone else's place, as it were? So I think that, you know, I'm an older guy. And so for me, the whole thing is kind of freaky, right? But at some level, there's a whole younger demo that says, hey, why are we so separate from each other? Like, are you and I really all that different in the end? Could you hang out at my place and it would be okay? And could I hang out at your place? We don't really know each other that well, but my sense is it would work out. Like if we were, we would be decent to each other. And particularly if you're going to get rated after the fact on how you treated me and I was going to get rated after the fact how I treated you and your future business was dependent upon being decent to me and my future ability to get into other places is going to be based on how I treated you. I mean, at some level, yeah, I think we could, we could get this done. And I think that's what's happened. There's a changing mindset about our separateness. People want to experience local travel. You know, do I really want to have another holiday in another 350 square foot space or do I want to actually get off the grid, get away from the convention center, not pay the exorbitant prices, be able to hear what your favorite restaurant is in your neighborhood, feel what it's like to live in your neighborhood instead of right next to the convention center, uh, kind of get a sense of what it would be like to live in Johannesburg or what it really is like to live, you know, in Boston. Uh, those are kind of things that, that have made it attractive. But you're right. There's risk. There's danger. They've designed for danger. There's a great podcast by one of the founders. I'm sorry, great uh, TED Talk by one of the founders, uh, Joe Gebbia. It's called Design for Trust. Uh, and that, that really talks a lot about his fear of renting out a room. You know, this is the founder of Airbnb. His fear that the guy in the next room was going to you know hack him into little pieces and put him in the trunk of a red Miata. So truly... I think there is that danger, but, but the beauty is most of the time, most of the time it works out really, really well. And in those cases that it doesn't, there are securities and insurance policies and things that are in place so that, you know, if you have a bad experience, they'll put you into another place of equal value and, and comp you the stay. If I do some damage to your property, they're going to have an insurance policy to protect you and make you whole against that. Speak for a few moments about the, the humanity that Airbnb brings to. I mean, you were talking about, you know, connecting with people in their favorite restaurant and where they live. Something that sometimes that sense of humanity is 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 missing from, you know, our travels and our lodging because it's credit card based. And, you know, a lot of times you don't even have to see a person at the door. You just you just tap and use your phone. And even with Airbnb, where you don't necessarily have a conversation with the person. 
there is a sense of humanity that is brought into the experience. How, how do they make that possible? Well, first off, I mean, if you're staying in somebody's house, often there's little touches that speak to that person and the kind of quirkiness of all of the different spaces. It's like, wow, people live in places like this or, or what a cool environment they've created for me. Um, whereas it's pretty, you know, it's pretty much cookie cutter in a lot of the hotel chains. If I were to take it a step further, I think that I have many stories in the book where people are practicing great hosting. And I have a fundamental belief that we're all hosting, whether we work for somebody else or we're in the sharing economy, you're hosting me on your show today. You know, we, we host people on websites. We host people when they walk in the door. And, and the beauty is I talk to some amazing hosts, some of whom will just, you know, give you a code so you can buzz into your place. But then you might contact the host and say, oh, man, I'm not feeling very well. And, you know, is there someplace I can go to get some health care? Uh, well, frequently these hosts will run right by, pick you up, bring you to the emergency room if it's needed. They'll stay with you during the night. I mean, because if we're really hosts, I mean, literally, if you showed up at my house and you weren't feeling well, that's what I would do for you. I mean, right, that's who I am, and that's who most of us are. If you're in my house, I'm going to take care of you differently. Well, that front desk clerk has, you know, hundreds of other people that they have to make sure their room keys work for, and they're really not that extra mile thinking about it all. It's very transactional. So we have great stories of, you know, people who have taken folks for, you know, health appointments in the middle of a stay or have been party to helping them propose to a loved one. And, you know, it's just such amazing things that people do. And our point isn't that everyone does it in Airbnb. Our point is that we're all capable of doing it. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And in it, he teaches one of the greatest leadership lessons. I know you're so into leadership and you're doing a great job of helping leaders kind of green up their leadership practice and become fully mature in it. But Frankl says it this way. He's talking about the concentration camps. Viktor Frankl was in the concentration camps in World War II. And he would say people were hungry. We we're all hungry. And some people had just a scarce amount of food. And some of them would give that little bit of food to people who were worse off than them. And he went on to say, most of us don't, most of us didn't, but the fact that humans could was the amazing, inspiring thing. And so for me, this book is all about the humans who do great things to lead and serve others and be true servant leaders through hosting. There seems to be a theme with a lot of these companies who end up being disruptors and that theme is doing a much better job of connecting people with people. Why have you developed an affinity to disruption companies and made that a core part of your work? Well, I think that right now, first off, I fundamentally believe we're on this planet to serve one another. That's like a core philosophical belief of mine. I've also come to learn that the better we serve others, the more comes back to us. So service serves us. So as leaders, I fundamentally believe that our job is to maximize the number of lives that we influence and serve over the course of our time, uh, and that our, our legacies are built on helping people serve well. And so if we do that, it goes on and it passes on from generation to generation. So that's my fundamental belief. I think today service is hard. Like it, it takes lots of technology because people want to be self-served as much as possible. They don't want to actually reach out and have to do service your way. But when they reach a point where 
they choose to be involved with a human or the technology doesn't work, uh, then you need to be there for them in amazing ways. Uh, you've got to rise above the noise because people don't feel cared about much. Uh, you know, and I think there's an important distinction between caring for someone and caring about them. You know, caring for them means I've got the lights on, the sheets are clean, you're going to be able to get into your room. Caring about you is, how is your stay? Is there anything else I can literally do to make it a better stay for you? You know, for you, you as a person, not, you know, as a traveler, uh, what else do you need? And I think that caring about you as an individual and caring for you through great technology and great operations is an exciting thing. And brands that do it well needs to be celebrated because we hear all the horror stories. The media loves to tell, you know, when somebody stubs their toe. Uh, but I love to share when people are doing it right because that's what inspires me. So how was, how was Airbnb across their leadership arc um, able to really integrate that? Because there's, it's one thing when you're a startup company and you're just a couple of college design students with some air mattresses and Pop-Tarts. It's another thing when you have a global network of, 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 of properties and engagement. How in their development as a leadership team were they able to infuse this necessity of really taking care of people? Well, and I think, you know, you talk a lot about the kind of the importance of having visionary leadership and really knowing what your, your vision is. And I think they had a vision that said, we are not in the business of providing hotel rooms and we're not in the business of technology. We're in the business of creating a world where anyone can belong anywhere. Um, so, you know, if you weren't somebody who really got excited about that vision, you probably weren't going to be part of the team. And then if you were part of the team, you were obligated to help create a world like that. And you had to inspire the host community to try to do that as well. And so they hired on leaders who were very like-minded and who could push them even farther. So Chip Conley is one of those people they hired. He is a, a, an elder in the classic sense of the word and a really pretty remarkable guy who, who has been in the throes of hospitality, owned his own hospitality company, um, and has, has just done a remarkable job of helping the brand. Uh, and helping the leaders. So I think that's it, is you surround yourself by people who believe in what you believe in from a, from a vision perspective. They need to be very different than you. They okay? can't all be clones of you, but that they share the vision and bring their gifts and talents uh, to bear. And clearly that's what they've done. Sometimes there's apprehension in organizations, the whole customer service feedback thing. And Airbnb and other organizations, especially now when we have Google and Yelp, I mean, businesses thrive now with the reviews and with the comments. How has Airbnb created a structure where it's fair and equitable and, you know, comments are not biased or if you don't like, you know, the, the host may be a wonderful host, but I don't like one thing and I might try to trash them or disparage them with my comments. How have they been able to mitigate that review and comment process? Well, so first off, they didn't do it perfectly when they came out of the shoots. It's that whole design thing we talked about of, you know, proving over time. Uh, for example, originally I could rate you, uh, you might be the host and I could rate you. And then you could see that rating and it would go up on the website. And then you had a chance to rate me. Well, now you've got a chance to retaliate against my review. So over time, they made those reviews revealed simultaneously. So I don't get to see yours before I get to write mine. So that's kind of helpful. Uh, the other thing they do that I think is really interesting is that, that they use AI to filter out all the extraneous stuff. 
So if I'm reviewing you as a host and I start talking about your town and how your town is kind of boring and, you know, as much as you were a good host, you know, it's just you live in a duddy sort of place. That's probably not, that's going to get filtered out through AI because it's not relevant to your hosting experience. Um, I talk about the, you know, the rental car experience that I had trying to get over to you or whatever. I mean, that is not related to you and you shouldn't be evaluated against that chain of things. So they do a really nice job, I think, of pulling out um, in a non-biasing way, the things are just extraneous so that people can focus on the elements that are relevant. Um, yeah, and I think there's going to be some unfair re responses. That always happens, but everyone's subject to that. And then if you get a consistent pattern of bad, it's really hard for me to find your listing on the website. I could search in your town for something exactly like what you have, but you're just not going to show up uh, through the algorithms of the search. Culture and community are very, very important with all the brands that we have discussed uh, on the podcast uh, thus far. How has Airbnb been able to really support this? Because there's a, there's a culture of people who love Airbnb. They will not do standardized hoteliers anymore. It's, they want the Airbnb way. And we, we recognize that it, with all the brands we've discussed, culture is a very, very big part. What are some of the things that organizations are doing that they need to shift in order to create a much more welcoming and affirming culture for the people that they service? Well, I think you really need to connect your, your customers with those who provide the services. You need to have the people who provide the service have community as well. In the Airbnb model, for example, it's a bunch of hosts that don't know each other. You could, you could never interact with anyone if you wanted to as an Airbnb host other than the guests, right? So, but, but they try to encourage a host community online. So they have a very robust online community. If you're somebody who doesn't like to go to meetings with other hosts and build a, a network in your town, you can get a lot of support to the online community. Uh, if you do like to connect with hosts, Airbnb helps you organize that and charter your own host community. Or if you don't want to be associated with an Airbnb community, they support just independent host communities. So if you're in a home sharing club, they will provide support to that. And most of what they do is try to help you do good in your community. So volunteer, I just did a host to host event in Portland where the, the throughput of it was not only some support for the host club, but also for people who were experiencing homelessness in Portland. They were supporting an organization. So they bring people together so they can do good in their community. And they also empower them to fight for home sharing rights. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is a big controversial issue. Should people be allowed to use their homes to make money or not? Or does that make for bad neighbors? Um, and then the flip side of it is, should we have people telling us we can't use our own property for, you know, our own ability to maintain our property? Uh, if, what if I'm an 82 year old lady and the only way I'm going to have housing security is to rent out that room? Why in the world should you tell me I don't have right to use my property in that regard and then ultimately lose the property to a reverse a mortgage scheme? Um, yeah, it's just to me, it's an interesting thing. And they build a community of people who have passion for protecting the rights of home sharing. Ch chat for a little bit about as you're building a company and organization, not being afraid of problems that you haven't discovered yet. Because this, I'm sure when they were putting together this whole concept of Airbnb, they were just trying to make rent you know, put money in their pocket. They weren't thinking, oh, one day we're going to have to deal with 
do we do people have rights and what are the legislation around it? And sometimes the fear of what we don't know can really stifle entrepreneurs and leaders. Uh, talk about what are, how, how can we not get caught up in that if we're going down the road toward adventure? Oh my gosh, the whole exciting thing about being an entrepreneur is solving problems, right? Um, and you get bigger, uh, more high-class problems, the bigger your business is, right? In the beginning, like the problems are just like survival problems. Now we're talking about social issues. We're talking about legislative issues. We're talking about political issues. We're talking about human rights issues. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, you can't begin to think about that until you've grown enough to have it happen. You know, I used to, at Starbucks, we used to say it's a lot better to throw a protest outside of a Starbucks than it is to have a protest in the coffee aisle of a supermarket. I mean, you're just a much sexier target the bigger you get. And, and you know, I think if you're afraid of all of that, you're probably not an entrepreneur at your core. At the core, solve problems, fix things for people, and then the money will flow and it'll get bigger and then you'll have to challenge that. And that's the excitement of thing. It's an all-in, all-consuming journey to be a leader in a business. And it's so exciting. Uh, I, would I would love to have the problems that Airbnb has right now compared to you know, the problems that, that they had in 2008. Well, how do they stack up when, when your research and your analysis, your conversations with, with the leaders and those who have, have frequented properties? How does this company, how does this brand stack up against some of the top tier brands that you've studied over the course of your career? They're so different. You know, it's like, which of your children do you love most kind of question? Um, you know, to me, I've worked with Ritz Carlton. I've worked with uh, Mercedes Benz, was involved in a four year transformation journey for Mercedes Benz. So, uh, you know, it's hard to beat those two when it comes to operational excellence, you know, integrity of product. Um, but Airbnb is just super nimble, super wacky. They kind of remind me of Zappos, which is a company I worked with many years ago. They just kind of think outside of the box. So from an innovative standpoint, Airbnb is amazing. From a mature, gravitas, elevated service experience, mature leadership, they're on the arc. They're adolescents in many ways. Uh, so yeah, I think that they're exciting to learn from them. And they're so disruptive that it causes us all to think about what else can I do to make it more convenient? How can I get my website to load faster? Uh, you know, what else can we do to use technology and humans in partnership to deliver a differentiated experience? Give us some advice as, as we're bringing this conversation to a close. I am a, I'm middle management. No, I'm at the, I'm at the desk of the hotel or you know, I'm the customer service desk. It's my holiday job. I'm at, I'm at Walmart or, you know, I'm, I'm technical support for a startup. How, how can I, from my position, which I think doesn't really matter that much in the grand scheme of things, how can I bring some humanity and service, especially in a time of year where everybody's kind of frustrated or annoyed, or I might even be burnt out as I'm looking toward the new year. How can I bring humanity and service to what I'm doing every single day? So think of someone you love and imagine them showing up right now. And how would you treat them? You know, if this is someone you loved and they were walking in the door right now, uh, somebody who's earned your love and respect, what would you do? 
And if you just kept trying to manufacture that, okay, last one went away. They were really mean to me. Clear it, you know, clear my palate. Let's go for it again. Here they come again, the person I really love. Let me give myself unto them. The beauty of this is the more you do that, yes, you'll run into some of those clinkers every once in a while. Uh, but most of the time, reciprocity is going to come into play. So when you love on people, they tend to be a little nicer back to you. They may have been really ticked off coming in the door, but by the time they leave, there's a smile on their face and they say, hey, thank you. You know, I was really having a tough day shopping, but you made this really pleasurable. And then you go, whoa, cool. I did something great today. I feel important. I did felt powerful. I had impact. Um, it's a really delicious mix uh, once you give it up and you keep giving it up, even in the face of some adversity. At the end of your career, you look back and you go, wow, how did I get this privilege to serve so many amazing, cool people? And that's my story. I mean, it really is. I, I have had experiences way outside of my pay grade because I just kept loving on people as if they were my mama or my daddy. Uh, and truly, that's kind of how I look at it. I respect people the way that my parents taught me to and, and then just try to love on them. Uh, and some days I'm not as good as others, but, you know, I'm always in there pitching. And I think if we just said that to every person, no matter where you are in the planet, if you gave that up, you will be in a better place in the planet before you know it. How can we catch up with you? What are the URLs, social media handles? Oh, yeah. I'm everywhere. I'm kind of obnoxiously on the internet. So you can just find me in my name, josephmichelli.com. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-I.com. And then if you want to learn more about the book, you can just go to airbnbway.com. So that's A-I-R-B-N-B-Way.com. Great conversation with Joseph Michelli about his new book, The Airbnb Way, Five Leadership Lessons for Igniting Growth Through Loyalty, Community, and Belonging. Put some links in the show notes to find out more about Joseph's work and so that you can order a copy of his new book. It's a, it's gift-giving season, so it's a, it's a good read for those of us who are in the service industry. want to encourage you to pause and think about other people during this holiday season. I know people are driving crazy and cutting you off and reaching in front of you in the store. But think about the person that you really, really love and how would you serve them in moments like that? That's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You know, it's my mission to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.